RadioInfluence.com. Former actress Morgan Brittany brings it unfiltered and unfettered, reminiscing about Hollywood then and now, and also addressing the perilous times we live in today on this episode of United Patriots Uprising with Gary Benford. I'm your host, Gary Benford. Thanks for joining us. Starting out as a child star and being in the business for more than 60 years, Morgan loves to talk about Hollywood's glory days, and she's just as candid, breaking down the demise of the industry when the Marxists moved in and took over. From breaking into television as child actress Suzanne Capito, first appearing with star Lloyd Bridges on Sea Hunt, to her classic role as the villainous Catherine Wentworth on the iconic TV series Dallas after reinventing herself as Morgan Brittany as an adult, to being co-owner, along with Anne-Marie Morell, of the conservative website Politichicks, Morgan Starr has shined brightly throughout her life while retaining her conservative outlook along the way. This podcast is available on RadioInfluence.com or your favorite podcast platform. A great way to show your support is by subscribing to the podcast, give it a rating, and leave it a review. And be sure to tell your friends about the broadcast. I got a special place in my heart for Morgan Brittany because she was on my very, very first live show when I first started this. There was a person out in Hollywood, in the, out in the West Coast, that knew all the industry people. And when I first decided to try and do a live show, I was looking for some people that were conservative. And I was told, I could get you Morgan Brittany, I could get you Nick Searcy. And the show was going to be live. And it was three days before the show. And I had Burgess Owens and I had Curtis Bowers from the Agenda series. But I hadn't heard anything back about Morgan or Nick Searcy. So I'm sitting up uh, two in the morning, New York time, watching uh, the uh, Soul Train movie, which was called American Soul. It was a TV series. I'm watching James Brown and George Clinton fighting each other. And I get a text two in the morning. I said, who's texting me at two in the morning? And the text says, Morgan's in. She's doing the show. Call her tomorrow. So the next day I was all excited and I call Morgan out in uh, California and I'm thinking, OK, she's going to be yeah, great, Gary, I'll do your show and, that, that, and I'll come on. And I thought we'd have a five, 10 minute conversation and thank you. And I'll talk to you Monday night. My conversation, the first one ever with Morgan, even before she came on the show, lasted 90 minutes. And we talked about everything, her life, my life, conservatism, everything that had gone on with her, with Lucille Ball, Henry Fonda, Ron Howard, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, just everything, just from soup to nuts. And then when she came on my very first show, boy, it was like I had known her my whole life. And uh, we've had a great relationship over these last couple of years, and she's been on the show a few times. And I am so happy to bring her back because she's got a lot to talk about and you're going to love this, people. So let's get into it. If I were to read all of her credits in more than 60 years as an actress and understand that 60 years started as a child star. So don't try and throw a couple extra years onto the age there to her. 
All I'd be able to say is, Morgan Brittany, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you and good night. But we we have a lot to talk about here with uh, uh, one of my favorite guests. She was a guest on my very, very first show. And boy, she has been through everything you could possibly be through in the television, movie, modeling uh, industry. She even danced uh, in a movie with Gene Kelly. She's done everything you could imagine. But the thing that brought Morgan Brittany into my world was the fact that she, in spite of everything that you hear about people and what they do in Hollywood, she's always been a conservative. She stayed a conservative and she's the co-owner of the conservative website, Politichicks with Anne-Marie Morell. Great site, you gotta check it out. We're gonna get into the Hollywood thing. We're gonna get into the California thing. We're gonna get into everything with uh, a, a person I always enjoy talking to. This is probably the fifth time on the air. I welcome back Morgan Brittany. Hey, Gary, what an introduction. How am I going to live up to that? Well, you know, I told you this the very first time, the very first time you came on my live show. And I said, hey, when I'm dealing with Hollywood people, you know, you're used to the, the big buildup. So I, I figured I, I have to uh, roll it out there. You know what I mean? How have you been? How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. You know, we're uh, maneuvering our way through out here in California. <laughs> I'm trying to keep my head above water, but uh, man, it's getting tougher every day. Let me tell you. I understand that. And I'm going to change the format here of the show for one reason, because I've started now that the show is mainly going to be one guest and about one guest basically per podcast. I've opened up to my, to my Facebook friends to uh, ask questions. So I asked them to yesterday to post if anybody had any questions that they wanted to ask you. And there's a person, her name is Rita. She lives in Colorado and she has a question. And because of her question, I'm gonna go with her question because it's something we would normally talk about and that would basically take away her question and her question's a good one. So Rita asks, ask her if she's always been a conservative and if not, what caused her to become conservative? Ah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, having grown up in California in Hollywood, which is the first thing I ever knew was working, but you know, from a very very early age, um, uh, politics was never never a big deal until I turned, you know, until my basically until my. Um, what do you call it? My childhood career had ended. And when my childhood career ended after Yours, Mine, and Ours with Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda. Great movie. Great. And it's yeah, on TV great. all the time. Yeah. Plays around Christmas time, especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I actually, um, my childhood career was over, so I went back to school on a regular basis. I, I entered high school where I had, had basically been. Uh, educated on a movie set for most of my life. So I was, if you remember, the time period was in the 60s, and it was the Vietnam War, and it was unrest, and it was kind of like kind of like what we're experiencing today. There was this unease going on. And of course, you know, the kids were 
into the hippie thing and they were into all of the protesting and into all of this kind of stuff. The only thing I did get involved with at the time was Robert F. Kennedy was running for president. And I kind of went to meetings about for the young Democrats just to, because I liked what he said. I had, I had liked John Kennedy. And so I kind of wanted to hear everything. And actually I was supposed to go to the ambassador hotel the night he was shot because it wow. was a, it was a um, uh, celebration you know, for him. And I was supposed to go, but I got sick, so I couldn't go. Um, that was the only time in my entire life that I even flirted with, you know, kind of looking at the Democrat side. But as I, <clears throat> as I became more and more independent, and I got back into the business, and I moved to New York, and I was struggling um, to make a living, I realized what taxes were, what they were taking out of my paychecks. I never knew that before because my parents basically handled everything with my money and spent it. I never knew even what I had. And um, when I was on my own trying to make it, I realized the value of electing people and voting for people that would let me keep more of my own money. So I became a fiscal conservative right there. But I always had a very deep moral, religious base to myself. So I tended to be more conservative in things that I did in my life. All of the decisions that I made as an actress, I made based on my moral compass so to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah. And I and I I would turn things down and get completely ostracized by my agents saying, "Oh my gosh, you're going to turn that down? That's a star-making vehicle." I mean, managers, I think I've told you the story about the manager, the very very famous mm. manager who everyone would know. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um and he wanted to represent me, but he told me that um if he did, I would have to lose my cross necklace that I wore every day. And he said, if I'm going to work with you, you're going to have to lose that. And I was taken aback. And of course, the next day I called and said, isn't going to work. I'm not going to do that. And he did not back down? He didn't back down. Wow. He didn't. Um, he, he Was he said, Jewish? Was he Jewish? Yeah, just uh-huh. for the people, for the people, was he Jewish? Uh, yes, yes. Right. Could that have yes. had something to do with it? That he was just personally well, offended it, by Jesus, you know? It, it was interesting because he said Hollywood, uh, Hollywood doesn't want to see religion. They don't want to, they, they don't want to see it. And I, and I thought that was odd. It was probably in the seventies when this happened. And I, you know, I just couldn't do it. I just, uh, you know, it was totally against my beliefs. I hear yeah. you. So, so that's how you came, you know, because it's, a, so was it part of, the, was part of this that your parents were conservative? Because if you're, for instance, uh, David Horowitz, 
who is now a beacon of conservatism. Uh, he's been on the show and his parents were flat out Stalinist. He was raised in <laughs> yeah, Queen, New York by parents who were flat out. We're, we're talking about cold blooded, flat out card carrying Stalinist. This is what he was raised. Ah, what chance did he have? It's a mate. Then he goes and becomes a Marxist in, in England. And now you listen to him now. You know, it's been a, a complete 180. He found his way because just like you, he, he became an adult and eventually kicked in when they murdered one of his friends. But the, but the point was, what chance did he have in, in that family he was raised in? So w what was your family upbringing like? Did it Was it within the California community able for you to exist as a child, as, as, a, as a young person who is going to go into this business? Uh, did your parents have conservative roots? Um, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a crazy question. Um, I, my family was, I mean, to my grandmother, it started with my grandmother. Um, they moved to California in my grandmother and my mother moved to California when in the 1940s, late 1940s. From where? From uh, uh, back in Tennessee, Chattanooga, okay. Tennessee, mm -hmm. and it it was her goal to make my mother a star. My mother was a singer; she was a country mm -hmm. western singer, mm -hmm. um, Grand Ole Opry, that kind of thing. Would we know her? Um, I don't think so, because my mother was the kind of person that that if there was any kind of rejection or any kind of negativity, she would just fold up and mm -hmm. not want to do it anymore. So it, it's, it's a long, complicated story. But when my mother got pregnant with me, my grandmother immediately saw an opportunity to, there's a new star. <laughs> oh, so, so this is the Brooke Shields mother thing going on here with Granny. Yeah, it, it was it it was very very bizarre. I mean, I didn't you know when you're a kid and you're growing up, you don't understand. You're just doing what they tell you to do. And if they put on the record player and say, "Okay, you're going to sing this and you're going to dance this and you're going to do this and we're going to put you in modeling school and then we're going to do this," this is the fifties. This is nineteen fifty five, fifty six, and I didn't know any different. But their their goal was basically make me a star. You were going to be a star, baby. I mean, you talk about a crazy life. I ended up doing Gypsy, which was Mama Rose with the daughters, and I'm mm -hmm. playing Baby June, and it's my life. <laughs> right. But my question, though, did you like it? Did you enjoy it? See, I started playing piano at five, uh, xylophone at seven, trumpet at nine. But I really liked it. My parents never pushed me into anything. They just let me go wherever I wanted to go. Did you resent this or did you were you really enjoying the process? No, I, I, I you know, it's it's really strange. It's kind of like. It's kind of like Stockholm syndrome where mm -hmm. you just do it. Do it, right. And and I mean I I do remember I had no life other than dance classes, acting classes, singing classes. I mean that was my life. I I never played with other kids. I never um I never could really go out and do anything for fear that I would get hurt. 
Um, when I had to go in on auditions, if I had butterflies or I was afraid or I didn't think I would do well, I still had to go in there and put myself on the line. And then they would, you know, I remember coming out of the audition and my mother would say, did you get it? Did you get it? Did you get it? And I, I don't know. I did the best I could, you know, and if I didn't get it, I would feel like I let them down um, that I didn't get the job. So I tried extremely hard to be the best I could be. So I would work. And honestly, back in the fifties, there were not a whole lot of kid actors. There was a small core group of kid actors. There was me and Angela Cartwright and her sister, Veronica. Um, you know, there was Annette Funicello. There was John Provost from Lassie, Jay North from, you know, uh, Dennis the Menace. These were all my contemporaries, Paul Peterson, Donna Reed show. And we were a group of kids that all worked. We, we, we went to different shows unless they were on a series and then they had their normal job. But those of us who were freelance, we would just go from show to show to show to movie to whatever. And, you know, it was constant work, literally constant work. Morgan, so I yeah. Morgan, I'm going to out myself and I know I'm going to pay for this because people <clears throat> that listen to the show is going to they're going to torment me for this. But I'm going to put something out. I've never told anybody. Huh. I used to sit there with my Mickey Mouse ears on Mickey Mouse ears <laughs> looking at a net for a cello and the Mouseketeers. I admit yeah. it. I'm sorry. Yep. Oh, listen. I'm Bobby. You. I'm a Ned. I'm a <laughs> <laughs> listen, you and and millions of others, believe me, it was I mean, when people today like my kids are in their 30s and they have a very hard time, you know, even even thinking about the fact that there were only three television channels so, right, back then. Right, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and nothing it, else mattered. Right, and, and the local in California, you know, KTLA, I mean, the news channel. But, but seriously, that was, it, that was it. That was the beginning of television, the beginning of, the, of that media. And so it, it was... Of course, you know, everybody, all kids, they loved the Mickey Mouse show. They loved all of these things. But I ended up being the sole support of my family. So the burden of working and getting jobs, you know, was at the top of my list when I was 8, 9, 10, 11 wow. years old. And I did extremely well. Um, as you said in the opening, I did so many television shows, so many movies. So wrap many... a few down. Wrap a few down from the early days. Oh, we'll my gosh. Into your first, adult... Started okay. out with Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges. That's the first, right? Sea Hunt, sea Hunt was first. Um, I did Playhouse 90, Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, Gunsmoke, Rawhide, Branded, um, My Three Sons, Lassies. I could go on and on. Andy, Andy Griffin, Griffin you know, show. Andy right. Griffin show. So, so I did. I did specials. I did Dinah Shore show, the special, the Chevy show that she used to do live at NBC. I did three of those as a, as a ballerina and and yeah. I mean, this this is this was my life. This is what I did. And then I would go and I would do 
The most interesting thing to me as a child actor, which I really missed as an adult, was that I got to play every week a different kind of character. I would one week I'd be on a Western set riding a horse on Gunsmoke. The next week I'd be with, with Gene Barry in a limousine doing Burke's Law. Um, I would be, you know, two weeks later, I'd be on the set at Warner Brothers doing a huge Hollywood musical. I would do, you know, a month later, I was cast in The Birds and I'd be with Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, this was the kind of life that I led. I can't say that I regret any of it. I can't because it was so amazing to live this life. Yes, it had so many bumps and so many hard times, but when I look back on it, I wouldn't change anything because of the opportunity I had and who it made me as a human being and what I learned and how I learned about people, about these actors who, for instance, when I did Yours, Mine, and Ours with Lucy, My only vision of Lucy up to that time when I was 14 was the I Love Lucy show, you know? I Uh thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be so much fun. Yes, and she is such an amazing, oh, she's so funny, and I'm going to have so much fun doing this movie. And when I met her for the first time, she was a completely different person. I mean hard as nails, very tough, very professional, very uh, abrupt. Business businesswoman, all oh, about business. Businesswoman, Ab- absolutely. And it kind of took me aback. But when I worked with her, I that was one thing that I did. I learned from everyone that I worked with. Lucy was the most amazing professional you have ever seen in your life. She knew everybody's job. She knew how to be, how the lighting should be, how the camera should be, where the camera should be, where Henry Fonda should stand. All the kids, exactly, you better do what you're supposed to do. And if you didn't, if you messed up at all or you, you cut up on set, you, had, you paid the price. And I learned complete professionalism from that woman, and I know why she was the success that she was. I know. I hear you. I I, got to drop in right now since you brought up the magic word. Uh, My second question, and this will be the only other audience question, and my best friend, Kenny Harmon, who lives out here in Long Island where I live, has asked me to ask you this now for two years, and I keep forgetting. So now Mm. I'll remember, and this is going to be a two-part question. Uh, his question is on the Twilight Zone on Caesar and me. And if you didn't see it, it was about uh, Jackie Cooper, who had a dummy. He was a ventriloquist. He had a dummy named Caesar and he was living in this place. And Morgan was the child of, I think, the landlord. And she just tormented Jackie Cooper the whole show. My best friend wants to know what was your problem with Jackie Cooper? Why you tormented like tormented him like that? And then I would like you to tell the Rod Serling story about your impression of when he was sitting in the dark. Because I, I just found that fascinating because most people would think when you watch a show like The Twilight Zone that is so precise and was so ahead of its time 
that you would think Rod Serling would have had his hands in everything, but that didn't seem to be the case. No, it wasn't. Um, I remember when that was the third Twilight Zone that I did. Um, Rod Serling and the casting department, um, they had their core of people that they they wanted to use and and they used people over and over on the on the show and it was um it was the third one that I that I did and, and about I how remember, old were you now how old were you now approximately I was probably 11 12 yeah 11 mm-hmm. 12 something mm-hmm. like that and I remember uh sitting with the director before we did our first before we did our first scenes and um he actually did give me the motivation. Basically, she saw uh, Jonathan, um, Jackie Cooper, as a loser because he was not paying her aunt. He was mm-hmm. living, he was living in this place and refusing to pay or not being able to pay. And he didn't have any. The director said he doesn't have any guts, basically. He's a wimpy little guy and he's being, he's being manipulated and you don't like that because you are a little bratty kid that gets her way. And the aunt, basically the aunt was the same as Jonathan. She was a little mealy mouthed lady. And so this kid kind of ran the show and that was the motivation that I used for that character and it worked great. Um, as for the Rod Serling thing, it was very interesting because Rod didn't show up often, but you know, in the beginning of the episode, in the beginning of the shoot days, uh, he had come to set and he sat in his director's chair under one of those big arc lights. Mm-hmm. You know, back then they had those big arc lights. Right. He yeah. sat in the shadow of that arc light and uh, you only saw, you only saw an outline of him sitting there. <laughs> and, and the, you know, I mean, it was re- realistically, it was, it was just, typical Hollywood because he smoked all the time. And back then you could smoke on the sound stages. It didn't matter. So he would, he would have his cigarette and the smoke. I could see the smoke going up into the arc light where I could see it. And he never said anything. And the, and Robert day, the director, he said, when he doesn't say anything, he likes it. (laughs) So, So it was really a good, uh, really good because he liked what he saw and um didn't he just get Jack, up and leave he did he did but we never saw him go we know we know he just disappeared and he went <laughs> on his way and um yeah it was it was really interesting but that was um he was such a genius he really Absolutely. was and he had to he had to make all the decisions on who was on that show it was it was his choice on who he cast in that show, which was great. Okay, well, you know, and boy, some he he that show, the black and whites were were just so outstanding. My my uh, favorite one is the one where the bank robber gets shot. I think it was Henry Valentine, and he think with Sebastian Cabot, and he thinks he's in heaven, and 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 he's trying to figure out why am I here, you know, and. And everything he asks for, he gets. All the ladies he wants. If he rolls dice, he never loses. And in the horse races, he always right. wins. Right. And 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 he, he it, it gets so bad he can't stand 
that and he goes to Sebastian French, who's playing, you know, this he calls him Fats, right? And he, he's like, right. Well, hey, Fats, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't like this place. Uh, you, you know, I, I thought I would, but I, I realize now I'm about the action. I, I need the risk. I need the chance of getting caught, the chance of losing, the chance of getting shot. So please, uh, I don't want to stay here. Send me to the other place. And he goes, the other place? You're in the other place. The other place. <laughs> you know, this is so, so pointed, you know. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. Rod, Rod just had, there was so many of them. Uh, but uh, here's something that anybody under 50 is going to struggle with this probably. So, But you, you need to tell them, please, and then we'll talk about what it has become. But please tell them back in the day what Hollywood was like. The, the, the person that has become the enemy of we the people, the enemy of the family structure, the enemy of God, family, country, and constitution. Back when you were starting out and for a long period of time, as you said, it was a Hollywood was leading the charge of patriotism, right? Absolutely. It was, you know, in the in the early days of Hollywood, the the studio system was run by by foreigners. Most of them were from other countries that had come to America and America was the greatest thing ever. And they became successful and all they wanted to do, the Frank Capra's and the Louis B. Mayers and Harry Cohn's, they they wanted to show the greatness of America. They wanted to show the greatness of the American people and, and how, I mean, if you think about, if you think about the films back then and the stars back then, the Jimmy Stewart's and the John Wayne's and, and the, you know, the people like Henry Fonda and, and all these brilliant, brilliant stars right. and stories. Right, even Cag story. Cagney did Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm, exactly. I'm so used to Cag Cagney and Edward G. Robinson. They were my favorite hoods. You know, I love White Heat and Public yep. Enemy with Cagney. I'm looking at him playing George M. Cohen singing I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, but listen, I, I, and believe me, that's what I grew up on. And I I knew when when we did shows like my Three Sons and Andy Griffith Show and Rawhide and, and even, I mean, all these shows had a message to them that was a, it, it had a moral core to the story, especially Andy Griffith Show. Right. Please tell and, that story about how you dogged Opie and, and, and cause that, oh. that, is, that is the, <laughs> that is the epitome of what you're talking about here, about the moral coming out at the end you know it 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 really was it was great because i <laughs> I, yeah, I know my, you laugh every time you tell <laughs> but i basically i started my career my first villainous role was in uh twilight zone there and then i go on to 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 be this horrible person to opie where i'm just <laughs> How I how all like, of both of you uh, in the show? You're basically you and Ron Howard, who played Opie. Uh, you're about how old on, well, uh, when we you became his girlfriend? Yeah, we were supposed to be, uh, I think about thirteen, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe both of us were supposed to be thirteen. I was older than him though, mm -hmm. and so we had we, we had gotten in. We got in the back of the police car, and Andy and Anita were in the front seat, and this was the end of the show. 
when Opie and I are, we've, we've made up and, and now he's won and he's, you know, he finally did what his dad told him would happen and things, you know, things worked out great. Well, please tell people what went wrong for it to end up working out great in the back of the car. Oh, oh, uh, Opie asked, asked this, he, he had this big crush on my character and, uh, he wanted to ask me to a dance and he finally got up the courage to ask me to the dance. And I said, yes, but in the back of my mind, I wanted to be asked by this really hot looking guy. And the, the hot looking guy ended up asking me after I had already accepted Opie's. And so I called Opie and said, Oh, I, I can't go with you. Um, I'm going to go with somebody else. And so she basically <laughs> stood him up. And then, of course, Andy tells him the lesson, and Opie just wants to fold and doesn't want to go. And he says, I'm not going to go. It's going to be embarrassing. And Andy says, no. You know what you have to do? you got to act like it doesn't matter to you. You go to that party, and you have a good time, and you act like you don't care at all. And so it kind of bites her because the fact that this good-looking guy that takes her to the party ends up flirting with all the other girls in the room and leaves her sitting alone. (laughs) And Opie comes over and he's like, hey, how you doing? You know, how you doing, Mary Alice? (laughs) And she's having a really hard time because nobody's paying attention to her. And he's he's finally winning out and he wins, you know, he wins her over and they leave and, and, and get in the back of the car. Anyway, the day we did that, that shot in the back of the car, uh, Ronnie was sitting next to me and the director comes over and he says, all right, now, now Ronnie, when, when, when she, um, when Andy says his line, I want you to take her hand and I want you to hold her hand. (laughs) He has this look on his face. Oh, do I have to? You know? And I turned to Ronnie and I go, Ronnie, you're an actor. You actor, can do right. this. <laughs> you can do this. He was just a kid, you know, and he's uh-huh. like, oh, I don't want to do this. <laughs> he didn't think girls had cooties, did he? Like I used to. <laughs> no. And but then when I turned was... 16, I couldn't wait to get cooties. I know. It was just so funny. And I said, Ronnie, you're an actor. You can do this. <laughs> And sure enough, when you see it, you know, you see the whole thing done. It's very, very heartwarming, and it's a perfect ending to a show. And, and um, yeah, it was a great experience. I, I, I loved working on that show. It was, see, and it had a message. It had the yeah. message. This is what Hollywood was about. And and there didn't you say there was a, also a reverence for the flag? and, and, and the, Yes. And yes. Talk, about, it, it, talk about that. See, because there's a lot of people that see Hollywood leading the charge against everything that is wholesome now, and we'll get into how that happened, and everything that's American, they're leading this Marxist charge now. So there's so many people that think Hollywood, as I call it, Hollywood, was always like this, but it wasn't. So talk about about the flag and how people had a love of country back then, it seemed. 
Yeah, they they really did. Um, honestly, everything everything that that I worked on back then was, uh, you know, very very pro America, and they wanted they wanted the whole image. I mean, of course, everybody knew. Not everyone had a blissful life. Not everybody had the perfect family, like Father Knows Best, where you come home and you have. Everybody knew. Yes, there was dysfunction. There's always going to be. But what the whole concept of Hollywood was, was we want to give people an escape from what their real life is. We want them to be able to watch TV or go to a movie and just for 30 minutes or an hour, just come out of themselves and say, wow, things can be better things really can. Maybe if I try this, it'll work. And, you know, Andy Griffith had such a, he had such an impact on, on the way that people gave a lot of thought to things, you know, and even, you know, Barney Fife, as crazy and silly as he was in the comedy that he did, you felt empathy for him. And, and it was something that people just have lost. But all of these shows had something that people could think about and go, you know, I should try. Actually, things, things are not that bad. I can make things better. Today, if you watch television, it is so negative. It is so violent. It is so dysfunctional and damaged that you walk out of a movie theater or you walk away and go, whoa, whoa. Hold on. All right. I think I'm going to go jump off a bridge. You know, that's not what this was intended to be. This was intended to be entertainment. The word entertainment has disappeared. You're right. And unfortunately, unfortunately, a movie that I was just taken back because the Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah's movie, The Wild Bunch, was the first movie to really show violence, in my opinion, in a different way with those slow motion bullets where you could actually see the impact. They slowed the bullets down in color where you could actually see impact and the blood come flying out. And I just thought that was so dynamite, little did I know, that was one of the movies that I'm sure you're gonna name that was the start of the downfall of where we just started. Hollywood just turned so dark. So now you talked about the glory days. What went wrong? Well. You know, it, it, I noticed it, uh, I noticed it in the 60s. In the, in the mid-60s, uh, there, there had always been an undercurrent of progressives and liberals in Hollywood. There was an undercurrent. There were, there were writers that were, you know, if you remember back to the, the, the Communist Party. Right, the McCarthy the, days. The right. McCarthy days. You remember that. But a lot of those writers and a lot of those people were were closet communists, and they had agendas that they wanted to push. They were kept under the thumb of the studios that you can't do that. The Hayes office at the time was, was, um, you know, the Hayes office was created for moral values and morality. And then when that the Hayes office was disbanded and you could do, you could say whatever, you could do whatever, you could start taking your clothes off. You could do all of this kind of stuff. 
I could see it starting to eat away little by little by little by little. And the scripts I would get, some of the scripts I would get as a teenager would be like, whoa, I don't feel comfortable with that. You know, now, let me ask you a question. Let me uh-huh. ask you a question here. Considering your mother and grandmother wanted you to be this superstar, how, if they were still in this picture, how did they feel about you starting to turn down roles? They didn't like it. They oh, me, gosh. Yeah. Oh, no. Basically, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Now, listen, this, 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 was, this was a very difficult, it's a difficult road for any person getting into the entertainment business, no matter what it is, whether it's to be a singer, a dancer, an actor, whatever it may be. They talk about how, they're so woke and they're so, oh, we treat women like, you know, equal. And no, yeah, no, right. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Forget it. They don't. I lived through as a teenager. I turned 18 in, uh, I think, like 69, 70, something like that. Yeah, 69. And believe me when I tell you, the minute I turned 18, it was uh, absolutely you turned into a stake hanging in a window if you were a woman. They made every comment. They grabbed you. They did whatever they felt that they wanted to to get the job. If you wanted to get the job, you would do whatever. And I many, many, many times. See, this is why I know that a lot of these Me Too women that say, oh, well, I went in and, you know, he gave me a drink and I went up to his room and this and that. You don't do that. You walk out the door. You say, this is not for me. I had a run-in with a, with a big star, a big male star that everyone would know. And he basically propositioned me and said, listen, I would love for you to do this, but you know what's involved. And I said, if I think I know what you're going to say, I'm not the person for you. You don't want to name him? No. Okay. <laughs> He's still right. alive. That's what I was going to ask him, but he's still alive. I was going to narrow it down a little bit. Yeah, and he, yeah. he, was, he was, I mean, any woman, any woman would have gone, oh, yeah, okay, where, when? <laughs> I mean, seriously. That's, how, that's, how did you toe the line, Morgan? You see, because when I was managing Dwayne Kerr, who's a contemporary jazz flautist, uh, flutist, and when I was in the music business, you see a lot of this. And a lot of people were trying to ask, you know, like they want to give me, because I was in management, a demo and take it to a record label. And a lot of times, you know you know how these, how, how deals are cut and how you, you just see it in the music business. And entertainment is entertainment. So I saw it in sports, too, when I was a sports writer covering the Knicks and the Jets and the Mets and all these teams, a lot of the entertainers would be hanging around the athletes. And then when the athletes are off, they'd always be showing up around these entertainment circles. And you could just see this is the way it is supposedly accepted to be to be done. So how are you able to uh, to not fall prey to this when so many people did? And the problem is once you start, now, now it's hard to put the milk back in the bottle. Yeah, it is. I think, I think a lot of it was because I did grow up in the business and I saw it. 
I saw <clears throat> I saw actors actresses sleeping with directors and you know handsy and play and this and that. I saw it all when I was eight, seven, six. I knew I I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew what was going on. And an agent when I was seven, an agent said to me, she said. There's, there's, there's so and so. There's this producer, so and so. Go sit on his lap. Go sit on his lap. Oh my god. And gosh. I'm like, and I'm like, what? I don't want to. I feel like I don't want to. And she pushed me over to this guy. And of course, he's handsy. And I just got up and I said, no, I just. And she goes, well, you're never going to get a job. And I said, I don't want to do that. And I was seven, I think. And, you know, this is, this is what stage mothers, a lot of stage mothers do to their children. They just prostitute them out for the money. And no matter what, no matter if anybody, there's so much pedophilia in Hollywood, it's ridiculous. I mean, with Brooke Shields doing, she was 12 or 13. I saw doing, it, pretty baby. I couldn't yeah, believe it. I couldn't you know, believe and, it. They and, had her on a platter exactly. in a movie. We're looking at this 12-year-old kid made up like a whore. Exactly. And, and she's a kid. Exactly. And then they ran some pictures in some magazine with her making a 12-year-old kid look like she was 23. Yeah, I, I, I'm saying I knew there was something. I looked at the pictures, but I knew there was something drastically wrong with that. Yeah. And, and believe me, it's still going on today. It's still going on. All of this stuff. Hollywood tells you that they are just so, so woke and they just, they're doing everything right. Let me tell you, no, wrong. And they are so vile, some of these people. Here's the way they talk about women is absolutely unbelievable. They'll get in like production, production people will get into a room and they'll discuss who they're going to cast. Who do you want for this big film? Who do you think would be great? And then they'll, they'll, they'll go through a litany of female actresses and around the table, the guys will go, ah, she's not effable, Mm -hmm. you know? And you know what I'm saying? I I got you. And, and, then another guy will go, forget it. She needs a facelift, man. That, that's like seeing hard road and this and that. I mean, this is the way they talk about women. And all these women think, these actresses, they think that they're just being elevated and they're, and they're you know, winning this war against this kind of thing. No. It is all about sex. It is all about how you look. It is all about what you'll do. And I don't care. It just never changes. It doesn't change. And women, no matter what they think, will never make the same amount of money as a movie star, as a man. They will never, they will never make the salary that a Tom Cruise will, that a Jim Carrey did, that all the superhero stars, they'll say it and they'll say, oh, well, we'll give them points in the movie or we'll give them this. It is a hard, tough climb for a woman to get equal pay. And yet you would think Hollywood was just the most fair place in the world. No, it's not. And there are thousands and thousands of young girls that come here every single day from all across this country, all around the world. 
and they wake up to the fact that this is what you have to do in order to make it in this town because there are a million there are millions of beautiful women there are millions of them and they go through the these productions go through people like water i, and I know once, what you mean yeah 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 and once and and the, and the other thing is you have to understand like for me i had two careers i had a childhood career and then i had the adult career i always knew <clears throat> that there was going to be an end game for me. There was always going to be an end to this. I never looked at a career that, oh, I'm going to just be famous forever, and I'm just going to work forever, and I'm going to do No. I knew because mine ended at 16 years old, my first one, and it ended with me falling on the floor and praying to God to help me get my life back together. So yeah. when I entered again and I got into the business, I got back into the business against my, against my will. It was almost like God was up there saying, no, 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 no. You no, you're going to do this because there's something you have to do. <laughs> and as much as I fought against it, I did get back into it. So I ended up knowing that I better make it when I'm young, when I've got the ability to, I'm going to grab every single thing I can. And I, then I'm going to walk away from it. When I'm done, I'm done. I am never going to be one of these people. I remember Gary walking into an audition. This was at the end, in, somewhere in the 90s. And they were looking for... They were actually interviewing all the actresses from the 80s that had, you know, had been on television shows and had a, had a big television name. And I walked into this room, and here I was. It was, for a, it was to be a lady lawyer. And I walked in, and I had a great pantsuit on. And I looked, I looked really, you know, like a, like a normal businesswoman walked in. I walked into a room of my peers. They wanted Cardi B. Oh, my gosh, I looked around and I knew these women. They were in mini skirts. Yep. They had they had facelift Botox boob jobs. Um they had low cut black they're they're fifty years old. <laughs> and they've got and they've got the boobs hanging out of the top of the camisole and the jackets open so that I, and I looked around and I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I just said, that's it. That's it. And I called up my agent. And I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. I can't. And I never looked back. And I thought, it is the, that is so humiliating. And so even now, sometimes I'll see an old actress that I know from years ago. And I'll see them on American horror story or I'll see them on some you know some some Netflix thing and they're doing humiliating stuff and you go why why would you do this you had a brilliant career you had everything you could have walked away and they probably don't need the money right they probably don't need the money but it's you know you could have walked away with dignity and and class 
but it's gone. And the thing that they justify it when I ask people, why do you still, you know, why are you doing this? Why do you, why would you? Well, it's acting. It's just acting. It's just playing a role. No, people see you and think that's you. They do. And that never goes away. And that vision never goes away. People do not separate. They don't separate me from Catherine Wentworth on Dallas. There are, there are thousands and thousands of people who still think I'm a horrible human being. You know, because that's who I played. That's ingrained in their head. And they go, oh, I hate her. They don't know me, but that's, that's the character, you know. Yeah, you played it people, too well. You played it yeah, too well. well and uh, yeah, well, hold on, hold on. We we got to go here since you went here. Okay, we'll get back to the show in a minute later. But since she went down this rabbit hole, you can't try and kill Patrick Duffy, the heartthrob, three times <laughs> and think that the women are going to love you. I, I saw that here with uh, my former wife, who was East Indian, but she looked very much like Susan Lucci. Yeah, and yeah. Susan Lucci here from lived right, uh, you know, like two miles from us in, in Garden City. And she'd take the train in into New York. And Susan Lucci, who played Erica Kane, she played that. She had women trying to stab her on the train. I know. I know. She and I have talked about it. I know. <laughs> I they, know. Think, they think that's you. They, they think that you're this cold-hearted bitch. And how dare you do that to Patrick Duffy, you know, and everything, uh, you know. Well, it is. It's 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 really true. I mean, and it's funny, even now, even today, you know, on YouTube, there'll be some comments on people who will put up of one of my old videos or, or these things. And you'll read the comments and it'll go through. I always hated that woman. My husband <laughs> really had a biggest crush on her. I hate her. You know, and it's like, oh, my gosh, people, come on. But, you know, as time went on, it, it, uh, I, I got to do other things. I got into a lot of charities. I, I did fundraising. But I was never considered one of those actresses that you just, you know, you just loved. Like you loved Myrna Loy, you know. You're going, oh, she's so sweet. Or Connie Stevens, she's so sweet. And then, you know, Rita, Hayward, I, Rita Hayward was my favorite, but she wasn't so sweet. You know, she always played the sultry temptress and everything. But boy, right. you know, she just exploded off the screen to me. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it's just it's so it's so crazy because the irony is some of the most sweetest characters and, you know, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth are just witches. And you just go, whoa, okay, back away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then the ones who are just so nasty and so horrible, like Larry Hagman, is just a delight. You know, you love going to work with him every day because he's so funny and he's just the greatest guy in the world to be around. You know, he was eccentric and crazy as a loon, but but. Well, let me ask you a question. Since you brought up Larry Hagman, who played J.R. Ewing and, and and one of the greatest characters of all time, one of the greatest villains that you kind of love-hate relationship with, why is it that the guys can play mastermind villains and <laughs> they're looked upon like as Hollywood heroes, but if a woman is a villainess, she's like vilified in real life? 
Yeah, I, I, I never got that either. It's like, you know, you get a woman who plays Hannibal Lecter. Oh, forget it. She'd never live it down. <laughs> but, right. But he can go on and do, you know, other kinds of movies. I mean, it's, yeah, it is pretty crazy. That was a great thing, though. That was the one thing about, like I said before, being a child actor. You could literally go from one character to another and not get typecast. But once you're an adult and you look a certain way, and of course, like, I'm really good friends with Morgan Fairchild, and she and I kind of went together. Another one of my favorites. Yeah, she and I kind of went together through things in New York City, and then we ended up doing a couple of movies together, The Initiation of Sarah. We've known each other forever. And and the, the, the strange thing was is that, the whole impression of Morgan Fairchild was, oh my gosh, you know, she is just, mm-hmm. she's the sexiest, the most amazing, the most, uh, you know, whatever. I but mean, don't don't just, be with her. Don't be with her. No, she was she was fine. She was great. I mean, in her characters, her characters, yeah. you wouldn't want to be right, with her. right. But right. still, men saw her as this this just sex object or whatever. And then with me, it was like they were scared to death of me. You know, I guys would like come up to me at an event or something and just be afraid to even say anything to me that I that I would come after them. You know, that that may have helped you. And you actually segued into a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, This was rough. You know, once you get become 18 and now, you know, the statutory rape law, everything, you know, as far as a child. Was there. Did you have somebody within your circle of influence? You've talked about your your grandmother. You've talked about your mother. You never talked about it. You haven't told me yet anything about a male influence in your life. Was there anybody, male or female, that was your guardian angel or your protector that they knew, okay, don't mess with Morgan because this person's in her life or somebody that you used as a sounding board with all of this stuff going on and and you're still not even an, an adult yet to know how to handle it to tell you the honest truth no um the person not the person what i relied upon was my faith i prayed to god and i said you lead me where i need to go you tell me what i need to do i that was the only that was the only thing i had mm. that was it no, if you I have the true God, that's all you need. I did. I did. And honestly, it was the conversations. It was, I mean, my life changed from when I knew that my career was over as a child actor. When my agent called, I picked up the, ex- remember extension phones? Mm-hmm. You pick up the phone mm-hmm. in your house and somebody mm-hmm. was on it. Well, my mother was on it and she was talking to my agent and the agent said, I'm sending back all her photos. She's done. She, she's, she's over. Um, I hope you guys have a good life. And this is you're about, you're, you're still, you're, you're I'm 16, 16, right. Okay. Yeah. And so hanging up the phone, I realized what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I I'm, I'm completely unable to do anything else, but this, and it was such an awakening for me, and especially family that says, when are you leaving? <laughs> you know, 
Uh, we don't need you anymore, so. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Yeah. I thought you meant. I thought you meant they're saying, "When are you leaving to find your next gig?" You mean oh, they no, were no, saying no. that was oh, it? No. That was it. And then I remember, for like the next two years till I turned eighteen, um, I was kind of a placeholder. I had no function. I had no no reason to do anything. So I and I, that's how I ended up doing Vegas with Gene Kelly um, at the at the International Hotel as a dancer when I was eighteen and. And my mother literally dropped me off in Las Vegas. Oh, my, and left you there? And left me. Left oh me. I had, no, I had no car. I had no money. The only thing I had was a job that I had to... I lived in a hotel across the street. Well, it's a motel. It was like a one, you know, one of those motels, Vegas motels in I've been to Vegas. I'm, I'm, I don't even want to ask. <clears throat> Yeah, I was so there in anyway, the 90s, but I don't want to... I know, I, I know. So it's like 19... 19- 70 and I'm I'm literally in this motel and I and I have to walk across the way to get to the international to go I can't even go through the casino because I'm not not old enough right I'm not old enough but I'm in the show so I have to walk all the way around to the back and go through the stage entrance back there and then I'm one of you know one of the dancers and we have our show every couple of nights and then I started you know I I I lived there and I kind of, I kind of mapped out my life of what I was going to do. And that's when I changed, you know, changed my name. And then after the Gene Kelly thing, I moved to New York as a whole new person. And How did you come up with the name? I, um, I was a big fan of old, old vintage romance novels southern gothic romance novels and so i'd go to the used bookstore there used to be a used bookstore in north hollywood and i'd go in there and for 25 cents i could get you know i could get books and so i happened to pick up this 1940s edition of a book called flood tide by frank yerby and i just kind of put it in my bag i already knew i was going to be going to new york but i had sold um my car which the only, that was the only thing i had in order to have any money at all so i took everything i had i got on an airplane uh to go to new york didn't know where i was going to go what i was going to do and i opened the book it was in my bag and i opened the book and the very first page said morgan brittany was the mistress of flood tide plantation and i read that and i went whoa that's a great name (laughs) i said that is awesome and so i played around with it and i thought man i'm gonna steal that so when i got off in new york i got off the plane in new york and within about three or four days that's who i was and back then, in 1971, you could do that. There was no internet. There was no nothing. You just went to a bank and said, I want to open a bank account. I don't have a driver's license, but, you know, mm-hmm. here's a piece of mail. You know, whatever. That's all you had to do. You didn't have to do anything. You could just be that person. And New York... Well, that's, how, that's how Suzanne became Morgan. Very interesting. That's right. 
That's right. Very and, interesting. And the and the whole thing was I closed the whole door. I closed the entire door on my past. I left that past in California. And when I when I literally got off the plane in New York, I was a whole different person. I had no resume, I had no credits, I had no past as an actress. I was a newbie. So you didn't and, you didn't actually try or, or what, maybe later when you came back to Hollywood, but so in New York as a model and doing everything yep. that you did, you did not try to use your child pass nope. to help nope. open any doors. No, because I knew it wouldn't. I knew it would only hurt me. Yeah. So starting from the bottom, I had to literally, Gary, I had to literally con my way and just, I mean, I think back now and I go, oh my gosh, what did I do? I mean, I went to an ad agency the very first day I was there. I went to Ted Bates and I, it. it was, yeah. a, it was Ted Bates yeah. ad agency. Mm-hmm. It was just like that show Mad Men, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I went up to the office and the secretary was in the front and I said, hi, I'm Morgan Brittany, and I'm here to see Nancy Fields. She was the casting lady for the ad agency. And the girl looked at me, and she goes, well, do you have an appointment? I said, no, actually, I'm here from the West Coast, and my agent, William Morris, they told me to drop by and just say hi to Nancy just to give her a heads up that I'm going to be here for a while. And you were not with the William I Morris was agent. Not with the William biggest Morris. agency in the world. <laughs> exactly. I was not with them. I was not, did not know anything. Nobody told me to go see Nancy. Anyway, anyway, this girl, she looked at me and I said, just, just a second. I'll just poke my head in, say hi, let her, you know, just, just let her say, see me. And she went, well, um, uh, okay. Um, she said, let me take you back there. And I poked my head into Nancy Fields and I gave her that whole story and I go, hi. And she she did not make a phone call. No, didn't make a phone call. She just looked at me and she had me sit down and she asked me, she said, oh, well, how long are you going to be here? And I said, I don't know. You know, it depends on whether I get work out there or not. And she said, well, you've got a great look. You look like, you know, the all-American girl. You'd be great for commercials and stuff. And she said, "Um, uh, you know, who's your agent back here? And I said, well... I don't know. I'm thinking about two or three different people. I am not really sure. <laughs> I'm like, oh no. And then I said, um, I said, hey, listen, why why don't I read some copy for you just so that you know that what I can do? And she said, oh, okay. She said, I've got this this commercial coming up. Uh, why don't you read it? It's for Visee and Eye Drops. And I and I read the copy, and she went, wow. And you've never done anything before. And I said. No. And she goes, well, you're just one of those natural talents because you're so real and you're so, that's, this is great. And I said, well, thanks. That's, that's amazing. And, and she kind of, she kind of looked at me and she goes, can you come back at four and read for the clients? And I went, yeah, yeah, I can do that. (laughs) Nobody knew. I mean, basically she thought, you know, I basically said, look, I, I was doing high school plays and this scout came from William Morris and liked what they saw, you know, because she goes, well, you've never done it. You haven't done anything yet. And she was like, wow, she's discovering this whole new talent. 
But um, <clears throat> you should have seen me that day. I ran out onto 42nd Street, which was full of hookers back then. <laughs> yep. And um, I, ran, I ran down and I looked through my Madison Avenue handbook and I'm going, agents, 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 agents. And the closest agent to there in this really seedy area, I kid you not, his name was Mort Schwartz. Mm. <laughs> I kid you not. Mm. And I went to his office and I walked up the two the two flights of stairs and I went, Hi, my name's Morgan Brittany. I need an agent really bad. I'm going back to read for a commercial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Mort was this heavy set guy sitting with a you know, sitting in a chair behind a little tiny desk and he goes, All right. Okay. (laughs) But you talk about, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. If I had to think about, if I literally had to think, oh my gosh, it would have taken me 10 years from that point to get Dallas. I would have gone, okay, no, I can't, no, I can't do this. But But I did. But But I did. Yeah. and I had my eyes set on a goal of what I wanted to do, and I wanted to do it the way I wanted to do it, which was not to compromise my values, not to compromise my morals, not to... That's the reason I ended up on television and not in the movies when I was uh, older, because I wouldn't take off my clothes. Yeah, there you go. And that's I ended up on TV because you didn't have to. Yeah, that, that, that's it. Now, we're going to get back right now to how this went went wrong because we saw how your career changed but before i go there because everybody saw the hitchcock movie i'll just throw the name out there and you can tell people what your recollections are because how many do two movies for hitchcock i did yes right Uh, your impressions of alfred hitchcock because we saw his reputation yes well alfred the hitchcock was he was actually, <laughs> he was a very, very strange guy. I mean, I was really young, but he cast, he cast me in the birds. And, and um, you know, back then it was just such a strange thing. You either had to stand out because they'd usually line kids up in a line. And then the, the, the director, the producer, whoever would walk down that line and they'd point they go, you, 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 stay, the rest of you can go, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way that it was. And that was the elimination process. So I was one of the kids in the birds and got attacked and did the, the whole party sequence. Right. Please tell the people about those birds because <clears throat> Tippy Hedren and you, this, this, this wasn't like some, uh, this wasn't, the, this wasn't really a day in the park, right? No, no, it was not. There was no CGI back then. It was all, um, you know, all real or puppets or cutouts or mechanicals. Um, It was it was everything was practical. There was no going into a computer and putting it all in later. Um, When we did the seagull scene, which was the birthday party, uh, it was freezing cold on this on this place where the house was, and the wind was just whipping like crazy. And they were trying to catch birds, these seagulls off these wild seagulls off of an island that was right off the you know right off the property. 
and they'd throw these nets out and they'd pull all these birds in and then the the trainers would put rubber beaks over them. Oh my gosh. Know, they would. They they cover <laughs> trying their to beaks. train wild birds. Yeah, they did they did and they'd stuff these these rubber beaks and then they'd put monofilament line, they'd tie monofilament line to their legs and then they would stand on ladders. These guys would get up on ladders and just chuck these birds at us and these birds <laughs> they would they would just grab whatever was in their sight. And when Hitchcock would yell action and all the kids would scatter, these birds would take after whoever, whoever they saw and land on you. And, it, you know, they're huge. They were huge birds. And then once Hitchcock yelled cut, the trainers would, like, pull them on a filament <laughs> line and reel the birds back in. Oh, boy. <laughs> Anybody so, get seriously hurt? Because, you know, that last scene with Tippi Hedren, it really looked like they tore her up. Yeah, that was, you know, she and Hitchcock had a really tough time because. Uh, yeah, we saw the movie. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they weren't speaking to each other. And, you know, he was very he was very sadistic and wanted to you know make her do things over and over and over and over, even though he had the shot and he knew he had the shot he would still make her do it again and again, which which a lot of times caused her to get hurt, you know. Um, even if it was a puppet, even a guy with a hand puppet with a bird that would be near her face, if it got too close, I mean, I remember she got hurt a couple of times. And, um, you know, it, it it was just very, very, it was a very strange situation. But Hitchcock had this molestic malicious sense of humor, should I say? I mean, my story that I told on all the talk shows back in the day, Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and all these things, I always used to tell the Hitchcock story about uh, being there at the party sequence, and I was really afraid. How old, were you, how old were you when you did the um, I was after Gypsy, so I was probably 10, I would mm -hmm. think. And I remember having trying to get up the nerve to go and talk to him just to ask him a question. And I was so, so scared. You know, I nobody talked to Mr. Hitchcock. It was like you just didn't do that. <laughs> and um, anyway, I just I needed to know because I had to do this scene under a fence and this this thing was going to come after me. So I went up to him and I said, excuse me, Mr. Hitchcock, um, I'm really, I'm really afraid of these birds. I mean, what, what if they kill me? And he looked down at me, this big, big man, you know, and he's looking down at this little girl and he goes, don't worry, my dear. It's your last scene in the picture anyway. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and you're 10 years old. And I'm 10. Oh, and I remember, I just went, oh, and I turned around and walked away. <laughs> And thought, okay, I'm done. <laughs> You're oh, on your own. Uh, but but that's what I mean by he probably meant it as funny. But, but you, you couldn't process that yet. <laughs> no, I couldn't. And so it's like, uh, okay. But we had, I mean, some of the stuff, the, the processing shot that we did at the schoolhouse later after the fact, Back at the studio on a treadmill, 
mm. with mechanical birds like being swooped in over our heads and we're running on this treadmill in mm. lines. Can you imagine kids in right. lines on I a treadmill? You. Right. So that's why it looked like you guys were flying in the scene. Exactly. Yeah. And so he wants it faster and faster. And so we're running fast. And the faster it got, the more terrified we all looked. Right, because now you're concerned about the treadmill. Exactly. And we're scared to death. You go flying off the treadmill before you get bit by a bird. That's what happened. The kid in the front lost his balance and took everybody out. And we all flew off the end into the crash pad. (laughs) I mean, really. Really? Yeah. Well, uh, this, this, yes. this is life in Hollywood, people. So we regress, but since you, you know, I'll segue, they flew off. Let's get back how Hollywood flew off the grid from being patriotic to what it has become today. Mm-hmm. The Wall Bunch was one of the movies. You've also talked about uh, Rosemary's Baby. You talked about uh, Lolita. There were a couple other movies that you put in there that you thought started to change the direction of Hollywood forever and not for the better. It did. It did. Uh, like I said, I started seeing I, I started seeing subliminal messages. It's very, very interesting. The progressives and <clears throat> and liberal left in Hollywood, the the real dedicated leftists in Hollywood, they had been trying to get their messages into things for years, for decades. And a lot of times it was taken out, it was edited, it wasn't allowed to be in there. As the 60s moved forward, more and more, it's almost like cancer, where it just grows and grows and grows. And they got very brilliant. You have to say that about some of these progressives. They are smart, because they know that if they package something in a certain way that's appealing to people, people will buy it. If you think about if you think about characters on shows uh, pushing an envelope, but they're funny, they're Archie Bunkers, they're All in the Family, they're Maude, they're they're George Jefferson. George Jefferson. Right, right, and 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 what they'll do is they'll make it funny, and you'll laugh, and you'll go, oh, I love him, or whatever, and so it becomes the norm for people, and people start accepting oh well that's not so bad because they make it funny or they make it they make it palpable for people and they're very insidious doing things like that they make sympathetic oh my gosh you know this person is 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 gay or they're being ostracized or they're being bullied because of this and you feel empathy for these people and it makes you it makes you so sad like oh this shouldn't happen and this is what they work on. They work on your emotions, and pretty soon you start accepting all of it, and you start thinking, oh, well, that's normal. Oh, well, 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 yeah, that's normal. Okay, and then you start believing because Hollywood makes you believe that the entire country is like this, and it's not. It doesn't believe this. You know when the, and, you want to know the first time that got me? The first huh. time I realized something weird was going on was when Midnight Cowboy came out with Dustin Hoffman and John Voight playing the uh, the the guy that comes to the New cowboy. York, to, the yeah. cowboy yeah. trying to be a stud, and he turns him into a homosexual, uh, <laughs> you know, a, you know, sleeping with men. That yep. won Best Picture, and the character of John Voight 
he for a cowboy was just so weak. You actually, you know, I guess people felt all this empathy for him. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's in God's eyes. This isn't the good thing. We shouldn't be seeing this. And it wins best picture. And I wasn't a Christian then, but something inside of me saying there's something not right with this picture. Well, there was a lot. There was a lot of things, you know, where where I would I would go or I would read something, and it and it was like, mm, this is this is not this is not right. Why are they trying to do this? Why are they pushing this so hard? And yet, you would see it, and and there was pushback from the American people, though. A lot of the American people went, you know, because because Midnight Cowboy was rated X, if you remember. No, I didn't remember that. Yeah, it was rated X, so it was it was literally you couldn't go see it unless you were a certain age, a certain you know, whatever, and you knew what you were getting. You knew you were getting. A well, I didn't devil. know. I didn't Cutting know edge. that that caught me by surprise. I had no clue what I was going to yeah. see. I I just said, "Hey, it's best picture. Let me go see." And I'm like, "I'm like, what the heck is going on here?" Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, a lot of that. But then the American people started to push back in the early. <clears throat> I don't know if it was the early. Yeah, it must have been the early '70s, where literally you started seeing shows that that were family oriented again because they're going, "We're losing our. People aren't going to the movies anymore." They don't like what they're seeing. The movie studios started selling off their property. MGM sold the back lot. They sold their costumes. They sold everything. And they thought they were going bankrupt and losing because every movie they put out like that, they were losing money. Nobody was going. And so back to TV, the networks are saying, no, 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 we got we to gotta do something. And so that was the, the era of the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Partridge, Partridge Family. Family. Cosby's. The, the uh, Michael Landon shows, mm-hmm. Touched by an Angel, and then Highway to Heaven. Uh, shows that showed family and real values again. Those became huge hits. But then the progressives start eating away again. All right. Okay. We got to go in there and we got to make sure that we do this and we do this. And then you get more, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it, it's literally a cancer that you can't kill. And they made so much progress throughout the 80s and the 90s. And they did MTV and they did all, when cable came in, there were no boundaries, no barriers. You could see whatever you wanted. Then you would get to the point where it was violence everywhere. People became so desensitized. Children that were watching it became so desensitized to violence. Death Wish, all these shows, these movies that were, people just, I mean, French Connection was a brilliant film. Absolutely, it's it was it was incredibly, incredibly gritty, and you're looking at real. I get it, I get it. That's what they do. They're artists. They want to show real life, but they're des- they don't understand that they desensitize people. I used to just cringe if I saw a. a, a anything that was violent in a movie. I couldn't even look at it. I'd look away, you know, and now they've got you to a point where you can just watch people get their heads cut off, you know, Game of Thrones. I mean, (laughs) there's nothing. And that's why people can go out on the street and watch somebody get murdered in the street and just take a picture with their iPhone. This This is because we have been desensitized by film. It's not 
a movie. Real life is not a movie. So many of these kids that create havoc and murder and do all of this stuff, they don't think it's going to have any consequences for them. Because like a video game, you just reset and you get up and you start over. That's not real life. We've lost, we've lost touch with reality. And the more we go toward artificial intelligence and the more we go toward, uh, you know, the, the, the VR things where you can watch things through the, the VR machine, that's going to even make it worse. I mean, you can, you can look at, what was that movie, something uh, where these two kids, they had avatars of themselves as these beautiful characters, and they see themselves as that. Well, look what happens with Facebook. Look what happens mm-hmm. with Instagram. All these kids see themselves. They can, they can change their picture and make themselves look any way they want, and they don't see the reality of what life really is. It's it's so, so surreal when you think about it and what, where we're headed. But like the frog in the boiling water, you don't notice it till it's too late. Well, please tell people if it's too late, because I think they've gone way past Marxists. They're, they're, they're being, they, it seems to me they're run by communists. There's so much communist influence throughout Hollywood. They know it and they don't seem to change. Tell people about what the industry's like what the people that run it are like and what's the pervasive attitude that's like, why California is all screwed up the way it is, and why when you try and talk to somebody like about this whole thing, it's like you're talking to a stuffed animal. Well, it's, you have to remember that the entire industry is not domestic anymore. The film industry, the music industry, it's not domestic anymore. It's global. It's a worldwide entity. So the producers and the directors of, of, of movies like, you know, all of these action adventures and all this kind of stuff, they look at this like not who's going to come and see it in the United States. It's how much money are we going to make in China? How much money are we going to make in, in India and Southeast Asia and all over the world? That's all they care about because their box office receipts are so much more around the world than they are here that they don't even care about us anymore. So what they do is they present product that they will get the other countries to buy. For instance, China runs Hollywood. China tells producers what they can and cannot say. If there's something like Top Gun, they will make you take the American flag, the Taiwanese flag, whatever, off of the jacket so that it isn't there, that their people can't see it. Um, there will be, if, if John Senna comes out and, and, and talks about Hong Kong. Right. And ha- Strong right? rest backs it down. Yeah. If, he, if he comes out and says something positive, they will, Disney will come and make a phone call and say, you better apologize right now or you are losing everything. This is where we are in Hollywood. This is where we are. And honestly, the United States of America doesn't mean anything to these people in Hollywood. They don't. They don't care about you guys that go out and see these movies. It doesn't matter really doesn't matter. 
it's everywhere else. Nike, basketball, they don't care about us. All they care about is the money they make there. And, and that yeah, is the yeah. that is the sad thing. That's the sad reality that we're facing. Donald Trump at least was trying to wake people up to that fact. But it is so far gone now. I mean, I have had discussions with Chinese nationals that have escaped and come here to live. I have talked to Frank Gaffney. I've talked to all of these people who say we have reached the tipping point and we're losing. The entire Chinese, Communist Chinese Party owns our pharmaceuticals. They own our drugs. If they decide one day that they're not going to send over your medications, that they just go, nope, I don't think so. We don't make them here. We don't make them here. We have to get them from China. And people don't know that. The pensions, the pensions in this country... Teachers' unions, pensions, public pensions, they're invested in China, where the money of these people that are putting money into their pensions, that money's going to build military equipment to kill us. Do people not know this? They have to know this. And if we don't wake up and we don't see it, it's not just Hollywood that's, gonna, that, that, that's literally fallen. It's going to be everything. Right. You are so right about that. And Morgan, I want to thank you for coming on and telling everybody about who you were, who you are, and about your career. And, you know, you've just segued into the most important thing, because the work that you have been doing now uh, and about politics and, and your political involvement, please tell people how and why you got involved and about politics? I got involved with <clears throat> with politics uh, quite a, quite a while ago, and, and just kind of undercurrent. I, got, I joined uh, Friends of Abe in Hollywood, which is an underground um, conservative group. A lot of known people in there, right? I know yeah. some people that they don't want to be outed. They're on the down low, but a lot of famous names in Hollywood <laughs> are parts of Friends of Abe, right? Very, very famous, very famous writers, directors, actors, a uh, lot of people. But um, I got involved with them. I became an outspoken person, along with Gary Sinise, John Voight, uh, a few other people. Nick Searcy, our friend Nick Searcy. Yeah, Nick, Nick Searcy, absolutely. We became kind of people who, who would go on TV shows and talk about uh, talk about things. We knew that it was you know, a nail in the coffin of the career, but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. We, we, it was, it was too important to us to, um, to say something that had to wake people up. And so that's how Politichick started. Um, we just started a website. Uh, Anne Marie actually started it. And then I came in, um, we did a, uh, you know, podcasts for a while. We wrote books. We've got books out. We do a lot of engagements across the country, at least we were before COVID, because that kind of stopped it. But big events uh, go to all the conventions. We speak out. We do town halls. We have discussions with people in small communities about their school systems, about how you speak out. The biggest problem that Americans have 
is the fear of speaking out, the fear of being canceled, the fear of losing their jobs because they they say the wrong thing. And we are trying desperately to get people to just stand up to that and say, go ahead. You're going to cancel me? Go ahead. And, and honestly, liberals are a little bit, uh, they're a little bit of a wussies and they back off when you when you stand up to right, them. Right, they're bullies. Yeah, they're bullies. And so if you stand up and you say, no, you're not going to cancel me, forget it. You know, they can do whatever they want to do, and there's a lot of powerful people in Washington that will do it. And, and I feel bad for a lot of the, you know, a lot of the elected officials that are trying to do the right thing, but we are trying to get people in groups, in mass, to show up at schools to talk just like that, just like what's happening now all across this country against critical race theory, trying to get people to say, I am not going to allow my child to be taught this. I am not going to do this. And it's not just, it's, it's not just white people. It's, it's black people, Hispanic people, Asian people, everybody, everybody. And there's more and more middle of the road Democrats coming on board. So that's our goal. That's what we want to do. Um, we have Facebook page, politics page, We've been taken down. If you can't find us, it's because we said something about COVID probably. But um, it's, we've been right all along. We, we, put out, we put out information at the beginning of the pandemic that was true, and we got you know, censored for it, and it's turned out to be true. So you know, the fight begins with each of us. The fight begins with somebody like you, Gary, who has a show and talks to people and gets people involved and motivates people because there is strength in numbers. And we, just like Hollywood, Hollywood wants you to believe that everybody is like them. Right. And they're not. And they're not. The, they, they try to do the smoke and mirrors and they try to make you think everything is the way they want it to be. And it's not. It's just like the, the, the boy who thinks he's a girl and, and does the swimming contest and beats the girls by 30 seconds. It's not real. You're not a girl. I'm sorry. And unless people stand up and say it, it's just going to get worse. And that's what we're trying to empower people with getting out and just saying it and saying, no, this is unacceptable. We are not accepting this anymore. Well, that that's, and by the way, just throw one other thing in. And if you're a man, you can't get pregnant. I don't care what you think you are. You're not pregnant. That's okay. right. That's that's exactly right. And, you know, it, it up is not down. Down is not up. Uh, it's just not. We're not the same. A man is not a woman and a woman is not a man. I don't care what they do or what they try. It's just not going to happen. But we what they're here's another insidious thing that they're doing. They are trying to destroy religion. Absolutely. They are trying, trying their hardest to alienate everyone from God. And this is another thing that we have got to stop. I mean, this whole COVID thing where they shut down the churches, but they let people riot in the streets. Yeah, I mean, and the strip clubs didn't shut down. <laughs> right, exactly. So this is where people have to 
and mass get out and say, no, we're going to church. Okay, take us to jail, whatever you want to do, but we're going. And I mean, there's, there's, it's very hard to believe things that you hear anymore through the media. You have to sift through everything. This January 6th thing is a complete Hollywood fantasy. Yep. It is a Hollywood fantasy. They have promoted it. They have branded it. They have got publicity people for it. It is a Hollywood creation. The whole January 6th thing is may as well just be scripted. You got it. Hey, Morgan, tell people how they get the website, Politichicks, and tell them how they can get in contact with you. Okay, Politichicks is politichicks.com, and you can go there and read articles. We have some great writers there. I am Morgan Brittany 4 on Twitter. Um, I've got a getter account, but uh, it, you just look up Morgan Brittany, and you should be able to find it on getter. Um, Facebook page. We have a Facebook page if we're up. <laughs> I don't know if we are. Twitter, Politichicks, they censor us quite a bit, so it's kind of hard to find us there. But I'm thinking about starting a Substack and writing articles on Substack. I haven't done it yet, but I'm thinking about it. So all I ask of people is that they start a conversation. They get people involved. They get people to think and not to just, you know, just look at the smoke and mirrors over here about COVID and all of this garbage going on, because that's just a distraction. It is. It's just a distraction. And they're, they're counting on COVID lasting and lasting and lasting and lasting so that they don't have to talk about anything else. And they especially don't have to talk about Joe Biden and China. Right. There you go. Well, as Larry the Cable Guy just said, get her done, we have been trying to do this for two years because every time (laughs) we talk off the air, you're saying, boy, and even on the air, boy, I'd like to come on and just tell some of my stories and talk about the glory days and the good old days and the good times and the bad times. We finally got her done, and I'm sure people are going to really enjoy this because you're going to bring back a lot of memories for a lot of people. And they go, I didn't know that. I didn't know he was like that. I didn't know she was like that. But it's the work you do now, the work you do now, that is just so important. And it, the, what you did in the past gave you the voice you have in the future. So we thank God for that. Morgan. Thank you very much for coming on. God bless you, Jack, and the family. And keep up the good fight and don't let them grind you down. Don't you worry about it. Hey, don't forget about me, TV. I show up on the love boat there. Yeah, yeah. You and Robert Vaughn. I didn't ask you about Robert Vaughn, but yeah, I saw and I and I, I in looking at the pictures, I, I didn't realize on the love boat with when you were with Ted McGinley that you were in yeah. a wheelchair. You were in a wheelchair. Yeah. What was it exactly. like being in a wheelchair? Exactly. It was it was Oh, it was a laugh a minute, let me tell you. It was, I mean, Ted McGinley, what a, what a clown. Right. He always, he, he made it work. He made that work all he over did. the place. He yeah. did. He did. But anyway, MeTV is a great place to go just to have a happy right. day. And mm-hmm. I love it. I'm over, I'm on there all the time. From right. Even my show Perry Mason is on there. I watch it <laughs> exactly. every night. Right. Murder, She Wrote. Perry right. Mason. My favorite show. Right. You'll That's see, my third, two of my there. favorite shows. Yeah. Murder, <laughs> She Wrote. Right. You, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, you, you, you made the rounds. I'm telling you, you had. I did. You, hey, I did. hey, oh. hey, remember? Hey, you even played a little Indian girl on Rawhide. <laughs> How would that go over today in this politically correct woke me too? It wouldn't. It wouldn't, Gary. I am older than I ever intended to be. <laughs> But look! Look at what you're doing now. You're you've got the wisdom and so much knowledge that you're able to use and write in books and in your speaking engagements, and in um, and in, in, in politics. This is what happened for me. Everything that I accrued when I made my in my other life, now I'm able to use for God, family, country, and constitution by on this radio show. So you've got your website, you've got your voice, and it's a wonderful thing. Thank you for coming on. You're always welcome to come back and. Uh, Keep doing what you're doing. I will. I will. God bless you and all of your audience, everybody that's listening. And uh, let's keep up the good fight, folks. We will win this. There. Thank you very much. There you have it, everybody. The one and only Morgan Brittany. And if you happen to go on a TV game show and they ask you how many times did Morgan Brittany's character, Catherine Wentworth, try and kill Bobby Ewing? Patrick Duffy on Dallas, the answer is not one, not two, but three times. Try to run him over with a car. Yeah, you know, it just she was just bad. But what a character and what a woman. I, I just thank you for coming on and we had a great time. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I want to thank my guest, Morgan Brittany, for bringing many of us down memory lane and reminiscing about her entertainment industry career that lasted more than 60 years, as well as her ongoing work in the conservative media arena. It's always a blast speaking with her, both on and off the air. This podcast is available for download at RadioInfluence.com or wherever you get your favorite podcast. Hope you'll subscribe to it, leave a rating and a review. And be sure to tell your friends about the show. Thanks for joining us. So until the next time, this is your host, Gary Benford, saying God bless you, God bless your families, and God bless America.